turn open to Matthew 13. If you want to keep your notes out, I'm going to be just uh, skimming them. I ask you to please um, read them throughout the week so that you understand why we are coming to the conclusions that we're coming to because of how pivotal this chapter is in history. We've been going through a long series called Foundational Framework that will be wrapped up in February. Yep. I was waiting for somebody to go, shut the front door, right? It will be wrapped up in February. In fact, I've already got this entire year's worth of sermons already planned. So, yeah, and I'm not a preparation guy, so you got to do something when you're sitting in the middle of Indiana at 60 degrees out and allergies are going crazy. Everybody said, how was your trip? I said, I'm glad to be back. I need to repent here in a minute. All right. So we've been going through a, a series called Foundational Framework. What is the big idea of history? That's what we're trying to get to the question. Or that's the answer that we're trying to get to this, that question. And here's what you find out is, is it's undeniable that Jesus Christ is the center of all of it. By his very claims to be God, by his very claim to be the Savior, by the very words that he said, but also the humble demeanor in which he carried himself, you've got to deal with him. I think it's very interesting whenever you get the opportunity to talk to people about Jesus and they don't have an opinion about him. Jesus doesn't allow that. You have to have some thinking, some concept of who he is. Well, he was just a good moral teacher. Well, he claimed to be God. If he's a good moral teacher, but he's not God, then he was actually a, a humble liar. So by his own admission, you've got to take him at his word. And if you've got to take him at his word, you come to this conclusion that what you're dealing with is much bigger than maybe what the Christian bookstore has sold us. And so I think it's important for us to maybe look at how we got to where we are and why we're looking at what we're looking at. So if you notice at the top of your notes, you've got some, some points up there that are unchangeable truths that we found so far. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. God wants you to know Him. In fact, when we talk about God revealing Himself, if you've been part of hermeneutics class, which starts up tomorrow, I'm very excited about it. But... If you talk about God revealing himself, we actually call the documentation of the revealing of himself inspiration. That's what we call it. We call the chronicling of how God has shown himself so that he will be known as inspiration. God wants to be known. God wants every single person to know him. That's why he has given us the Bible. It's not hard to read. And actually, in a lot of places, it's not really that hard to comprehend. I found a lot of people that have problems with the Bible can't tell me where those problems are. That's always a fun conversation. The next one. Who is God? Well, God is the eternal. He's always been. He is now. He always will be. He is sovereign, which means he has the right to rule. That's what the word sovereign means in the Scriptures, is that he has ruling capacity or power is what it is, but he's also the creator. 
And he is the only creator. There aren't a lot of creators. There's, there's not a work your way up after 40 years and hopefully you'll attain the rank of creator. No, he is always the creator and everything that has been made is a creation. Therefore, by necessity, everything that is created is answerable to the one that made them. Have you ever heard of Ford talk back to its maker? That'd be weird. Wasn't that Knight Rider? Calm down. Don't get crazy with me. I'm in a good mood today. You not? I'm in a real good mood. I'm glad to be here. Are you not? I didn't get any amens. Are you glad to be here? Hey, who needs coffee? Where's Art? Art, bring the cart down. Art, the cart? I love it. Great. It's good. We're not going to get through this in the time we need to. <clears throat> Number three. Yeah, we're just going to go into Sunday school. Everybody's off today. Um, man is a responsible agent. Because God takes the initiative to reveal himself, he doesn't reveal himself, and the expectation is mindless oblivion. People make themselves known because they want a response. And if you just extend that word response out a little bit more, you find that the word responsible is in there. We are responsible. If God has revealed himself, we are responsible for responding to him. Not only that, we're held to a moral standard. Why is that? Because whatever would be considered right, true, and ethical finds its origin in God and his word. It does not come from whether or not the government mandates if something is acceptable or not. We're not batting a perfect average on that one so far. However, God is batting perfectly, and when he judges a person, he judges them perfectly by the standard that he has set. Why? Because only he is perfect, therefore his standard is necessarily perfect. Sin originates within a person, and it creates death, which is a separation from God. Sin starts with you. God did not predestine you to sin. That did not happen, even though that's being largely believed in a lot of churches today. God hates sin. It costs the life of his son to deal with it. He does not like sin. However, sin is not so great to where it thwarts what he can and cannot do. He's God. He can take care of that problem. But it separates us from God. Since we've all sinned, we're all separated at some point in our life. Therefore, we need a remedy. The next one. God declares someone righteous. And that means to be in a right standing with God because you have a justness like Him. That's the only righteousness He will accept is one like His own. And so therefore, since you and I can't conjure that type of righteousness, no matter how many different ways that this world has tried to attain perfection, it's got to come from someone else. And that someone else is exactly who we're dealing with in their earthly life right now. And how does that righteousness come? It comes by faith alone. Why is that? Because if it's anything but faith, you had to work for it. And if you have to work for it, and I had to work for it, and without asking Tom, you'll be very clear that my works are sad, as are his. That's all I'll do today. I might lie. I'm not going to say that. But if that's the case, 
then anything I'm bringing to the table diminishes the value of what's going on. Therefore, I cannot save myself. I am desperately in need of saving. So someone else does the perfect work for me, for you, and by believing that perfect work is then transferred, accounted to, accredited to me. Man, don't you wish that somebody would accredit to your mortgage? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't know anything, and actually the bank owes me money? Somebody's having heart attacks at that moment, right? This is so much greater than your mortgage. This is not just God saving you from the penalty of sin, which is death, eternally separated from Him, but abounding and overflowing in grace to set you up for a life that will matter eternally. And he does it all by his grace. None of us deserve it. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. This is what's so incredible about the Creator. He is a giver. We're not used to that. We're used to everybody taking. What's interesting is, is that's not God. How about this next one? The glory of God. That's the chief end of all history. That's what everything is leading to. It is the centerpiece and the goal of all of existence. Why do you do what you do? If you do it for a reason other than the glory of God, you should question why you're doing it. If that is what God has set forward as what everything should culminate in, and you're like, yeah, I'm all about the glory of God, but i got this little thing over here that I'm kind of doing for myself. Where's that going to lead? I guarantee you this, it doesn't end in the glory of God. Therefore, we have to now question our life's thinking and desires as being incompatible with how God tells us history is going to end. Does that make sense? What you don't want to be found is out of whack. Not any more than I already am, actually. God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. He's not just a creator, he's a ruler. Because he is the creator, all things are subject to or answerable to him. And that is where history is leading. In Matthew 13, you have some interesting parables. Let me blitzkrieg you with some information that you've heard over and over, but I want to stir up your mind by way of reminder. Anybody know where that verse is located? You should know this, Kevin. First Peter, I heard what you said. I got ears in the back of my head. That doesn't make sense. But I want to stir up your way, your minds by way of reminder of this. The Jews had the opportunity to accept their promised Messiah. What that means is that you've got 39 books that said He's going to come and He's going to save you. And He's not just going to save you, He's going to rescue you. And He's going to deliver you. And He's going to set you up. And you are going to prosper. And He is going to reign. And you are going to be able to worship Him. And you are going to be so deeply, intimately loved by Him that you're never going to find anything else that would possibly be as satisfying as the Creator of all things choosing you for no reason except for the fact that he loves you and drawing him unto yourself. Israel is a blessed people. But when he showed up, by and large, they didn't want him. Especially the leaders. Power had corrupted discernment. And so instead, they desired to have him killed, and they plotted for it. 
because of such accusations against him and a denial of his works that were clearly done by the power of the Spirit of God, he has now turned against them and he's using a teaching method that he had not used before. And it's parables. And what they are are principled storytelling devices in order to communicate eternal truths. And they serve a twofold purpose. The first purpose is the fact that it is judgment against Israel for their unbelief. But for those that did accept him and his message, it's going to reveal further truth. Let me give you an example. Chapter 13 of Matthew. Look at 10 through 13. here. It says, And the disciples came and said to him, and notice how astonished they are, Why do you speak to them in parables? Good question, right? Probably because he'd never done it before. So this is immediately arousing something in them of, what is going on here? How come you're operating differently? Notice what he says. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now notice the differences here, okay? A mystery is something that has always been true, but may not have been previously revealed in the Old Testament. So now, in the New Testament time, Jesus is bringing a previously hidden truth, always has been true, just hasn't been known before, and he is now revealing it in a dramatically different way. Everybody got that? Now notice what it says, to you, who's the you? The disciples. To the disciples who have accepted him, they are getting this amazing information. But to the Jews who have denied him, he is speaking in such a way as to where they cannot understand. And understanding is everything in enacting what Jesus wants to see in our lives. Let's watch what happens here. Look at verse 12. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have a what? Abundance. That's important. That is an important point. If they already have the Son because they believed in Him, then whatever they're going to be receiving from this moment forward is going to generate abundance in their life in some, reason, in some way. Now watch this. But whoever does not have, being the Jews who rejected them, even what he has shall be taken away from them. Whatever they think they have laid claim to, snatched out from their grasp. They don't even have what they think they have. Kind of like money, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're good to... Oh, no, the car needs repairs. Right? There's always something in there. There's always something. And what do you realize? It's gone as quickly as it comes in. That's what happens in life. What we thought we had would be gone if we've missed accepting Jesus. But if you have accepted Jesus, you've actually been invited in to know more that was not previously understood. Now, watch. This is interesting. Verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they, what does it say? Understand, and understanding is the difference maker. Now notice, the disciples came to him privately. Why do the disciples come to him privately? Because he is withdrawn from the crowds, the unbelieving crowds, and speaking in these storied forms. And he is entered again into a house. And now it's just him and the twelve, and they're having a conversation. To you it has been granted. To them, no. Now, skip down to verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes. Why? 
because they see. And your ears, because they hear. Now watch this statement, it's incredible. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. So now with this, we turn over to verse 44. This is where we left off at. And here's what you find. This is important. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read 44, 45, 46. We're going to go back. We're going to break it down and talk about it. Because even though these are only one verse, one sentence, or two verses and one long sentence, something like that, you can easily glaze over this. Oops. And if you did not, if you do not take the time to stew on it and to think about it, you will miss what Jesus is trying to say here. Now watch what happens here, okay? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? But our question is, what does it mean? Let's take a few things into account first. Number one, the audience has changed. Jesus is speaking just to the disciples. Yeah, Judas is there. You always have one in the group, right? But, you always have one in the group. But, Jesus' teaching is now focused. When the crowds were in view... You had the idea of this parabolic teaching being a sign of judgment against them because of their unbelief. But that's not the disciples, is it? In fact, doesn't he tell them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Guess what he's telling them right here? The mysteries of the kingdom. Notice, because they have already, they are being granted further understanding about something that was not previously known, but God wants them to know it. And so judgment is no longer on the table as far as how, or sorry, as far as the thrust of why he is teaching. Notice, though, that he still speaks in parables. He is still using this principled story-type language in order to communicate certain truths to the disciples so that they will grasp it. Why does he do that? Because he wants to see their lives dramatically changed. Now, if you go through and you do a little study of the disciples that he had right now, you probably wouldn't pick them to do anything that you were responsible for. They were, by and large, weird. I don't know how else to say it. Peter's always shooting off his mouth. James and John are trying to be first, getting their mom involved. Will you go talk to Jesus for us? How weird. Judas is stealing money. Thomas is doubting everything that goes on. Matthew used to be a tax collector. How do you get out of the IRS trappings? I don't know. But they were a ragtag bunch, man. And out of all the people that this could have been revealed to, righteous people throughout the ages. 
Moses didn't get this truth. David didn't get this truth. Isaiah didn't get this truth. Daniel didn't get this truth. Micah, Hosea, you name them. They didn't get it. At this particular moment in history, God demonstrates grace on extremely undeserving people in telling them something that is going to completely change their existence. It's actually going to make their lives worth something. So what is it? There are two popular interpretations of this. I disagree with both of them. You should not be surprised. <laughs> but the first is actually a lot of dispensational writers hold this. Uh, love them to death. Got their books. Read them. Thankful for them. But I disagree. Because here's what they say. Let's read 44 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. From joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. The first viewpoint here is the fact that the treasure is Israel, and the man who finds the treasure is Jesus. And by him hiding the treasure and going and selling all that he has, which is actually this idea that he's paying his blood, he's giving it on the cross so that he can purchase the world, so that he can redeem Israel out of the world. I mean, you go back to verse 38, Jesus equates the world with the field, does he not? So we pull that in, it seems to make some sense. In fact, some writers have even said, well, the idea of purchasing the world is because Israel had been dispersed throughout the world. And so they had to be called back again. Now, there's some difficulty, I think, with this interpretation. I've listed them out for you, but let me go through them just real quick. Number one, there's no reason to think, it's an educated assumption, but that's all that it is, that the man is Jesus. Number two, how did Israel get to be the treasure? Well, he's called a treasure in the Old Testament. Yeah, but is that what we're dealing with now in this current context? We can't just pull something from a thousand years ago and try to plug it in somewhere to try to make sense of everything unless the text leads us to do so. Another concern I have about it is, doesn't Israel already belong to God? I mean, isn't that kind of the whole thing that's going on in the Old Testament? You're mine? You're mine? I mean, he's pretty, you're mine! I'm your king! In fact, doesn't that kind of make you think about, well, why did God discipline Israel? Because they were his. He can discipline them. Because they were doing wrong and they had a better right relationship with him that they were not taking advantage of and living contrary to that. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? How about this? Who's lost? Not spiritually, just with me. Okay, just making sure we're good. Everybody stick with me here because I'm going through this viewpoint. I don't believe that it's Jesus and the hidden treasure is Israel. Number three, wouldn't that mean that Jesus only died for the Jews? We're all in trouble. Uh-oh. Now, the way they get around that is they say, oh, well, the merchant that was looking for pearls and finds the one of great value, that's the church. We had to get you guys in there somehow, right? I don't see that. In fact, has Jesus brought up the church at all so far? No, you read the entire book of Matthew. He hasn't even brought up. He doesn't even bring it up for another three chapters. So why that would all of a sudden be asserted here, it seems weird. Let me ask you this last one that seems pretty convincing. Has there been anything in this chapter at all about the cross? No. There is nothing about his death at all. What is this chapter about? The kingdom of heaven. Has that meaning changed? No. Just because Jesus said, all right, crowds, I'm done with you guys. I'm judging you by the way I speak. Let's go inside. All right, guys, now when I say kingdom of heaven, I mean the cross. He doesn't tell his disciples that. 
And there's no reason for us to think that because the audience changed, his subject has changed. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew, whether he's in the house or talking to the crowds, whether it's John the Baptist preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is near in chapter 3 of Matthew, or whether it's in chapter 4 verse 17 of Matthew, where Jesus is preaching the same message, it has not changed. The kingdom of heaven speaks to Jesus' literal, earthly, physical, theocratic rule sitting on David's throne from Jerusalem so everybody can see it and he is the king period now if that don't light your fire your wood is wet this morning because when my savior comes back he is going to rule and everything that is wrong is going to be made right and everything right that I stand for is no longer going to be considered wrong in public opinion why? Because God has spoken and what he says is true. Period. Jesus will rule according to that standard. Now here's the second viewpoint that is nothing short of heresy. And I don't throw that word around loosely. But it's one of the most heretical things I've ever come across to think that this is what this means. Some people believe that what this is is Jesus is telling the disciples, stop, are the disciples saved or unsaved? With the exception of Judas, they're saved. The eleven are saved, right? Let's, let's go with that. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What this is talking about is really clear. If you want to be in the kingdom, you need to be willing to give everything you have so that Jesus will save you. Because salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. I actually read that line. Now, we just had Christmas, right? Anybody get gifts? Did it cost you everything to get it? Praise the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. You don't know my in-laws. It did cost me everything to get it. I get it. I get it. But by and large... When you talk about a free gift, it is not something that you had to work to receive. It's free. In fact, in Microsoft Word, this was fun, I typed in a free gift on Microsoft Word and it put a blue line under it. And I clicked on it. And it gave me this whole, why are you not more concise about this? A gift is free and free is a gift. And even Microsoft Word has good theology. So I don't understand why somebody would say, well, if you want to be saved, because that's what they equate the kingdom of heaven with, is actually going to heaven when you die, you need to be willing to give everything or Jesus won't save you. Is salvation about what Jesus has done or what I need to do? Why we mess this up? And why do we have to take a phrase like the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus has been using consistently in this chapter, and Matthew has been using consistently through his gospel, and the Old Testament has been using consistently in the concept through the Old Testament, and all of a sudden put all these trappings on it about the cross. It's not there. So what in the world does it mean? I'm curious, what do you think it means? I don't know, I didn't study that part. I'm not prepared for that, I'm just asking. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) What do you think it means? Well, here's the thing. Has his audience changed? It's no longer the crowd, it's who? The disciples, that's a vital point. And so what does this tell you? It tells you that they are in a prime position to receive more revelation that is not about judgment, it's positive. It's good. 
It's moving forward to a healthy goal. What's my other point I had about this? That's why I got to write it down. I'm getting old, guys. The focal point is the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's the point. Now, does everybody remember the parable of the soils? Everybody remember that? That's, kinda, that's how he started this whole thing out, right? And we don't want to just start out the telling of parables with this and just leave it behind. Yeah, that was cute. That was fun. It works real good on a flannel graph for the kids. Let's move on. No. The whole idea was is that a sower went out to sow some seed. And the first soil was rocky and hard and could not receive it. And birds came along and snatched it up and removed it. And Jesus tells us that they snatched it up and removed it. It's Satan, actually, so that they cannot understand. Understanding is the key here. The second and third groups dealt with completely different things. They received the seed. They, they oh, this is great. This is amazing. They embraced it. But when they started to live it, share it, be so moved by it as it mattered as reality in their life and conducted the way that they now made decisions in life, they received persecution and affliction because of it. And what did they do? They ran from it. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. That's not true. The third group, money was too much for them. If I hold to this, it might cost me something. And I don't want that. Well, no one else in the church is doing it. So it must be wrong. The Word of God is the standard, not the church, regardless of what some people may think. But it's the last group. In fact, look at it with me if you don't mind. Verse 23 of 13. If you don't have this highlighted, highlight it. Put a post-it there. Set up a neon sign. I don't know. I'm telling you, if you grasp this, it will change your existence. Here we go. Verse 23, And the one to whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word. The word about salvation or the word of the kingdom? Pay attention, guys. You're not, I'm, let me just say this real quick before we move forward. You're not going to get this right now. Some of you will, some of you won't. I'm asking you to go home, read the notes, pray on it, stew on it, okay? Meditate on this concept. Let it simmer for a while, okay? Because when the Holy Spirit unlocks your understanding to grasp this point, you are not going to be the same person. If you're satisfied with who you are, then throw away my notes in the Bible, right? But if you're not, give it a chance, and ask yourself the question, is this what the Word of God is teaching? Now notice, you hear the Word about the kingdom, and do what? Notice that's the key. You grasp it. You get it. Look what it says after that. Indeed, you'll bear fruit. That's the goal. And it brings forth in some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Here's the question. Do the disciples understand I guarantee they do. In fact, if you look over in the 40s here, notice that you move down to verse 51. Now, it makes some of us mad. If we don't spend time working through the parables to figure out what they mean and what Jesus is saying, we get frustrated at this idea. But notice what Jesus asked them. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. But oftentimes we say, no, I don't get it. We have more revelation of the Word of God than they had at that time, and they understood it. Okay? So there's no excuse for us not to get this. Let me show you what it means. 
whether you are someone who finds treasure in a field or whether you are someone who's been dealing through valuables and you find one of unbelievable price, when you find the kingdom of heaven, give everything you have for it, to obtain it, to possess it, to make it your own at all costs. Get rid of anything that you think is valuable in order for it to be yours. You're confusing me, preacher. Are you talking about i got to give everything to go to heaven? No! If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. That's John 3.16, a done deal. Everybody with me? The disciples are beyond this point. Jesus is calling them to more. Let me sum it up this way. He's saying, you already have me. Now I want you. That's the idea. If you're a saved person, you're going to be in the kingdom. But let me ask you a question. What does your kingdom experience look like based on the way that you're living your life now? Does the idea that Jesus is coming to reign for a thousand years, he will come back. He's coming. I mean, we just did communion. And the whole point of it is his death for sins, the giving of his body in our place, and we keep doing it until when? It's a point in time. So obviously when he comes, it's going to matter to a great deal because even the representation of his body and blood points to this pinnacle moment. Who's confused? So let me give you this. When we talk about believe in Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life, we're talking about relationship. But as I've been hammering for months now, Jesus is inviting the disciples into greater what? Fellowship. When you come across the truth about the kingdom of heaven and you realize that Russia's not going to win and China's not going to win and the United States is not going to win, that Jesus Christ wins and it's already locked up. He has won. Do you live your life in light of his victory? Think about the most precious thing you have right now. The most precious thing. Maybe you've got a Porsche in your garage that you polish with a diaper. I don't know. Maybe it's jewelry you've got hidden. Maybe some of you are still stuffing $100 bills in your mattresses. I don't know. Anybody think it was weird they were bearing treasure in a field? I don't. They didn't have safes back then. Where else are you going to put it? Right? Treasure maps. What's the most important thing that you have? And then let me ask you this. Is it more important than possessing for yourself? Because God invites you to do so because of the relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. To be actually an inheritor of his kingdom. To live a life now that matters on an eternal scale. Who cares if it matters to other people now? Maybe it's because of my old age. But man, I'm getting so tired of what other people think. And letting that control why you make decisions. When God clearly tells you, don't do that. Now here's the thing, this isn't a shocker. At least it shouldn't be. Let me give you some examples. Turn back to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice it doesn't say blessed are those who don't have any money. That's not what it says. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are destitute and understanding that they can't make it on their own and they desperately need another always. Another big capital A. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is yours if you are poor in spirit. Is that not what it says? How about look over in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. If somebody hated you because you loved Jesus, because you stood up for the right things, because the Bible has declared what is right and what is wrong. For, why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of what? Me. Does everybody see the connection between Jesus and righteousness there? Yes? No? Who's asleep? Raise your hand. Wake up, guys. This is important. I don't want to have to... No, I'm not going to do that. But everybody needs to be awake for this. I'm telling you, this will change your life. If you are persecuted because of Jesus, it is a joyous thing. You can't expect to be living on fire for Christ too long and the world will rear its head to hate you. Why? Because it hated Him first. What did Jesus ever do to be hated? In fact, don't we read such things as, but God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners what happened Christ died what did Jesus do to be hated so bad you see what I'm saying it doesn't make sense but you're not going to be short of people persecuting you for righteousness sake because you claim the name of Christ the world will come against you look what he says blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You know what that's called? Gossip. Destroying your reputation. Why is that? It's because of Jesus. Notice what he says. Rejoice and be glad. But I don't feel glad. Well, no, because people are talking smack about you. But your Savior's already got it locked up. And if he's commanded you to stay true, stay the course, stick with it, don't give up, steadfast, persevere, go, go, go. Run the race with endurance and finish well. Rejoice. Be glad. Look what it says. For your reward in heaven is what? You know what that means? In the Greek it's da da da! Is Pastor Steve here? He's not. So he can't tell you otherwise. Mary Cooper? Shh. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because of what it costs you in this life now. The Lord wants to repay you in the life to come. And what does He want to do? He wants to give you ownership, share, inheritance in His coming kingdom the life you live now dictates what your eternal life will look like 
Notice what it says. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets. How did those guys fare? Anybody know how Isaiah died? Not good. That's all we can say about it. They sold him from here to here in half. Why? Because he was mean and stole their money. No, because he was cruel and beat his kids. No, because he cheated on his taxes. No. He told the truth. He told the truth. God says this about your sin. You are wrong. Repent. He loves you. And he desires infinitely greater things than the garbage that you're settling for now. Come to him. Humble yourselves before the creator of all things. There's only so much of that a sinning, hard-hearted person can take until they want to kill somebody. You don't believe that? Check some of the political Facebook posts that go on. I actually read something. Hey, when are we going to snipe this guy in the House of Representatives? Yeah, they probably go to college. Good job. We're wanting to kill people because of disagreement. What is wrong with this world? It's Christless. That's the problem. That's not us. Blessed are you when these things happen. It happened to the prophets. Look where they are. Esteemed of God for being obedient. He wants that for you and me. It's no different. How about this next one? What else do we have here? What am I doing here? Where am I at? Excited to be in Portage, I'll tell you that. All right, chapter 5, verse 19. I mean that with all sincerity. Verse 19, look at this. Now watch it, guys. If you read it too quickly, you'll miss it. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. Now notice that. You're not following those commandments that Jesus gives you. We can read that later. Do it in your own time. But Jesus has commanded something. You're not going to do it, and you're actually teaching other people not to do it as well. Look what it says, though. Watch this. It sounds like a bad person, doesn't it? They shall be least in, stop, in, in, least in, still in, the kingdom of heaven. But look what it says after that. But whoever keeps and teaches them, You're not only embracing this teaching that Jesus is giving in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but you are also teaching other people. In other words, what Jesus is teaching here is changing your life. It is making you realize that what is to be attained and what he desperately wants you to have, because he only wants you to have the best, in the coming kingdom is going to cost you what you presently hold valuable now. And so you give that up for the sake of attaining the eternal of what he has. So this is someone whose life has changed and they turn around and they're teaching others to hold these commandments as well. Look what it says. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, personal, practical, how I live my life, righteousness, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean you're going to be out of the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, that would contradict the previous verse. What it means is you will not have a rich entrance into the kingdom. Charles Spurgeon described it this way. We may all be at the table, but some of us are going to have shot glasses and others are going to have steins. And I'm talking German steins, both hands. We're all going to have some type of cup, but some of our cups are going to be able to hold more than others will. That's exactly what he's getting at here. 
if you know the kingdom of of Christ is coming, how does it change how you live your life? One of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture, Matthew 6, 33. In fact, you could just conduct your whole life by this one verse. You're going to do awesome. Look what he says. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first. If that's all you care about in life, you're on good ground. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything that we worry about in life, stop it. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. He can do it. He's God. And if you are honoring him first, remember he found the treasure, hid it, and for joy, there's the motivation. You mean Jesus wants to give me this? You mean he is calling me to participate in this way alongside him? In reigning in eternity? You mean he wants to lavish on me a robe of white? You mean that he wants to invite me to reign alongside him and to sit on the throne alongside him as he reigns? Yes! But it costs you in this life. It's going to cost you. How about this one? This one always messes people up. 721, look at this one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord... Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You know what all of these passages right here about entering the kingdom have in common? All of them are talking about, where did I have it written down? Because I worded it better and I'm going to say it. They all call for instances of self-discipline. It is a general way of life that a person is called. It's an attitude. It's a demeanor. It's an outlook. It's a perspective that instead of having me and my selfish, personal, vindictive, angry, evil, impatient desires at the forefront of everything of how I live my life and how I deal with people and whether or not I want to spend time and whether or not I'll sit down and pray with the Lord and whether or not I'll get in His Word to know Him more and let my desires conduct me. It's like some kind of crazy 60s love fest with some people. My my feelings are just taking me everywhere. Good grief! Is this where our society is diminished to? It doesn't surprise me for them, but it should never infiltrate the church. Why? You and I have been called to greater. You and I have been invited To share in the kingdom. Not just be there. Not just show up and go, man, this is really nice. Jesus did a good job here. This laser light show isn't fantastic. It's actually to have ownership. It's actually to lay claim to it and say, because of what Jesus has done for me, and because of why he has invited me, I could say this is mine. It may cost you. You ever noticed, talking a lot about getting old lately. You ever noticed as you get older, the Lord calls you to narrow your focus? This is something I wish I would have known 20 years ago. Because all, all I can do is sit here and think about good grief since 1998, 1999. I've squandered a lot of time doing a lot of things that Jesus doesn't care about. 
Why did I do them? Me. Who's the great deceiver in my life? Me. Who's going to tell me what I want to hear? Me. Who am I trying to get approval from? You. Everybody see how dangerous that is? Because here's the thing, when you're dabbling in all this nonsense that the world esteems as good and right and perfect and acceptable and politically correct and all these other things like that, what you actually find is that they are robbing you from everything that Jesus died to give you. Saving us was just the start. Paying for sins was just the start. He wants to give more and more and more. He invites us to actually be found holy and blameless before him in our love for one another. That's Ephesians 1.4. That's just one verse. Good grief. You mean I actually have the opportunity to be found holy and blameless before the Lord when he judges me in my love for Tom? Praise Jesus. It's a possibility. I love you. No, it's a possibility. Because I could very well fail at that. I could very well for a moment allow for some sort of personal desire to overcome everything that God has told me in his word about what is right and true. Let me give you an example. Kevin used this verse last week. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave who? There's your standard. Should I forgive this person? Well, how much did God forgive you in Christ? Completely. There's your answer. Well, I don't feel like forgiving. Stop for a second. Is that about God or is that about you? Everybody see why this matters? Because forgiveness is such a difficult subject for people to deal with. If I forgive, then what, it, what they did was right. No. Forgiveness is saying I accept the wrong done against me and I'm willing to live with the consequences and move on. That's what forgiveness is. It's done. And so what we do is we allow the heart to become hard and we refuse to be flexible and able to be worked with at all for the Lord and we're obstinate to the things of God and we're wondering when the preacher will shut up at church because we're so bored from what he's got to say even though I'm telling you the greatest thing you've ever heard in your life. And it's not because I have it to say, it's because Jesus is inviting us all to be there. Come! Give it up now so that you guarantee it later. If it costs you everything, do it. How many people find these stories about missionaries rotting in jail hard to relate to? What fuels them to stay true? Richard Warmbrand, you ever heard of him? Voices of Martyrs? He's got a free book they'll send you, Tortured for Christ. Read it. It'll melt your skull. Read it. They tried to brainwash him into denying Jesus. He kept the Lord ever before him. And when he was released from that Russian prison, he was stronger in his faith than he ever was when they took him in. What happens to a person? That's the type of fellowship that Jesus invites us into. Well, I just can't deal with Monday. Come on, man. Who's your God? Who's your Christ? What is your calling? We're all going to be in the kingdom. But the question we have to wrestle with is, where? What's that going to look like? Is what you're doing now 
the attitudes you have, the decisions you have now, going to merit the greatness that Jesus talks about having alongside him in the kingdom? If it doesn't, and you can sit here and say, it's not going to work out that way for me. I can see it right now. The only answer is to humble yourself before the Lord. Just because we got saved doesn't mean we stop needing the cross. Lord, I, I don't just need you to save me from hell. I need you to save me from today and right now and this next situation I'm stepping into and the next thing that my tongue wants to say. I mean, doesn't Jesus kind of give this idea of take up your cross daily and follow me? Every day, every day. We already have him. If you believed in Jesus, you have him. But here's the thing. He wants you. He wants you. Does he have you? Pray with me. Father, help us. Maybe right now if we're wrestling with this question of whether or not you have us, we thank you, God, so much, and we do not want to diminish or eclipse at all the free gift of salvation and Jesus giving himself for us but he calls us that if we would lay hold of, be owners of this kingdom, that if it calls us to give up those things we esteem as precious and valuable, that we would lay it down. It all costs you are worth it. Everything you've called us to is worth it. We do not even have a fraction of an understanding of the glory that awaits. Father, help us to feel that weight of how important this is. And if we are running amok in our Christian lives, today would be a day of surrender to your Son. Thank you, God, for overflowing gracious, abundant. It's a loving fellowship you want to have with us, God. Help us, help us to grasp what in the world that means. And ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.